Hello, and welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. I'm Ramsey Janini, and this is episode 8, 1888. This episode marks the beginning of our exploration of the beginning of the thousands of phonographs, gramophones, and sound recordings that began to emerge in and after 1888. During the 1890s, sound recording machines moved from laboratories and lecture halls to living rooms and showrooms, and sound recordings went from being fragile indentations in tinfoil to mass-produced and durable wax-based commercial products. Recorded sounds started to become part of everyday life, and recording stars started to become household names, as they remain for us today. I look forward to exploring this new phase of origin with you through the medium of recorded sound. To begin our adventure anew, I want to start with a poem. It's called A Lost Chord. It was written by an English poet and philanthropist named Adelaide Ann Proctor, and it was published in 1858. Seated one day at the organ, I was weary and ill at ease, and my fingers wandered idly over the noisy keys. I know not what I was playing or what I was dreaming then, but I struck one chord of music like the sound of a great Amen. It flooded the crimson twilight like the close of an angel's psalm, and it lay on my fevered spirit with a touch of infinite calm. It quieted pain and sorrow like love overcoming strife, it seemed the harmonious echo from our discordant life. It linked all perplexed meanings into one perfect peace, and trembled away into silence, as if it were loath to cease. I have sought, but I seek it vainly, that one lost chord divine, which came from the soul of the organ and entered into mine. It may be that death's bright angel will speak in that chord again. It may be that only in heaven I shall hear that grand Amen. It's a poem that will strike a chord, pardon the pun, with many a musician, particularly improvising musicians. It depicts moments in improvisation where sounds or soundscapes are created that seem to invoke cavernous moments of connection and transcendence, where altered states emerge that feel imbued with love, beauty, timelessness, and unity. Whether one has religious sentiments or not, it can feel as if one has broken through to a pure joy underlying existence, call it God or what you will. For me, as a person who loves to perform and listen to music, I've never felt these feelings with quite the same intensity when only listening to music. I think it's because as a listener, you always have the performer to assign the sounds to. For that matter, when playing notated music, the musician and audience can always attribute the sounds to the composer. But when improvising, at times and in certain styles at least, well, like the poem says, sometimes you know not what you are playing. The music channels in from somewhere very mysterious. It appears full of intensity and then disappears, and the moment ends. But in this age of sound recording, the moment doesn't always end quite as much as it used to. The soundtracks of these transcendent experiences can now be reproduced and recorded. So nowadays, musicians will lament that, like the fish that got away, their greatest musical inspirations come when they forget to hit record, or after a battery runs out on their recording equipment. The fish get away. But what's telling is that when such moments are recorded, more often than not, the musicians will listen to the recording later on and think, was that it? Somehow, somewhere, something gets lost, like in describing a dream or explaining a joke. In the end, perhaps like with so many things in life, it means more to us when it comes and goes. Many poems and songs have been written about these feelings and experiences. 
Leonard Cohen writes about David's secret chord, while Tenacious D write a tribute to the greatest song in the world that they improvised and then forgot. And at the dawn of sound recording in late 1876, Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan fame turned his hand to writing music for the very poem we started the show with. He wrote it as a tribute to his brother Fred, who was dying from tuberculosis and liver disease. Fred had spent his short life performing in operettas and comic operas, including those written by his brother. Arthur and Fred had always been very close, and as Fred lay on his deathbed, Arthur regularly visited him. Arthur sketched and composed much of the music for the poem at Fred's bedside. He called his song The Lost Chord, and he completed the manuscript on the 13th of January of 1877. Fred passed away five days later at the young age of 39, leaving behind seven children and a pregnant wife. Soon after, the song left these private spaces of illness and grief and entered the marketplace and concert hall. Arthur Sullivan was already one of the most popular composers in Britain, and his reputation was only enhanced by The Lost Chord, which became one of the most popular songs of the 1870s and 80s in Britain and America. It was championed, performed, and eventually recorded by some of the most famous singers of the era, including, eventually, Caruso in 1912. But one of the most important recordings of the song was recorded by an unknown cornet player and pianist in 1888. It was recorded on one of Edison's new and improved phonographs by one George Edward Gouraud. Gouraud was born in Niagara Falls. His father, Francis Gouraud, was a French immigrant who had come to America to demonstrate and market the daguerreotype photographic process. However, both he and his wife died in separate incidents when their son George was just five years old. Fourteen short years later, the orphan George was fighting and killing in the American Civil War. In fact, he was so good at fighting and killing Americans who were born in particular states that he earned a Medal of Honor and was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. But that's all by the by. He's important to us because later on in life he decided, under the name Colonel Gouraud, to become Edison's representative in London, and by extension Britain and Europe. In a sense, by taking technologies across the sea, he was following in his father's footsteps, and from 1873 onwards, he began establishing an extremely clever marketing and promotion operation based at his house in South London. His house became known as Little Menlo, in honor of Edison's Menlo Park facilities in New Jersey. In 1888, he began a major new project, the promotion of Edison's perfected phonographs. Guro, perhaps in keeping with his military past, approached the project like a campaign. His goal at the time, in accordance with Edison's business objectives in America, was to eventually establish a market for the phonograph as a dictation machine. Edison thought his perfected technology would first find its feet in the professional worlds of business and bureaucracy, where for all of recorded history, the important business of recording the sounds that left people's mouths happened by hand and pen. Do you know any stenographers today? Quite. So, that was the goal, but Gouraud knew that as far as the marketplace was concerned, he first needed to establish a buzz, a platform from which he could advertise near and far. He needed to capture the imagination with the new machine, so he first turned to music. By the way, we're going to eventually get into what happened technically speaking between 1879 and 1888, but the too-long-didn't-listen summary for now is that Edison's new machines featured wax-based cylinders that allowed for acoustically richer recordings that were, perhaps crucially, much more durable and genuinely replayable as well. At least, rather than only lasting for two or three playbacks, they lasted for two or three dozen playbacks. And after they eventually wore down, they could be shaved back and reused. But I digress. Let's go back to the 26th of June of 1888. On that day, Gouraud finally received one of the new machines at Little Menlo, 
which once again was his house in South London, in Upper Norwood, to be precise. Now that he had the machine in his hands, his campaign to promote it could really get started. Just three days later, he set up the machine in the press gallery of the 1888 Handel Festival at the Crystal Palace. The orchestra, conducted by Sir August Manns, featured about 500 instrumental musicians and a 4,000-voice choir. This was a time before electrical amplification, but when you could attract a crowd of nearly 24,000 people to a Baroque choral concert, and it's quite likely that quite a few of those 24,000 had already read about the new machines. Some eight months earlier, in October of 1887, Edison completed work on his improved phonograph, which was shortly followed by his perfected phonograph. To publicize the new and improved phonographs, Edison sent a letter to the popular American journals Scientific American and the North American Review. Between the 21st and 24th of October, Edison's letter printed in various newspaper edits in at least London, Leeds, Cardiff, and Belfast. Edison wrote that although the commercial importance of electric lighting had occupied the previous 10 years, the phonograph had never been far from his thoughts. He acknowledged that the phonograph of 1877 was a brilliant idea, but little more than a novelty due to its technical limitations. This cycle of new and improved technologies being presented, and more importantly perceived as perfect, and in turn relegating the previous technology to the status of a flawed predecessor, is a process at the heart of the history of sound recording, and many other cultural processes as well, technological or otherwise. Personally, I experienced this first in my life with home gaming systems. When I was very young, Pole Position and Moon Patrol on the Atari 2600 were close to perfection. The graphics were incredible to my young eyes, and I found it difficult to imagine future games looking much better or even different. That's what perfection looked like at the time. I felt that way until the summer of 1988, when I visited a cousin who had a new Nintendo Entertainment System, complete with Duck Hunt, Super Mario Brothers, and RBI Baseball. That then became the new perfection, and it was difficult again to imagine graphics and gameplay getting much better, to say nothing of the amazing soundtracks as well. Dun 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 Yeah, that was the sound of that summer. It forever changed my perception of previous Atari and PC graphics and games. Soon would come VGA, then the PlayStation, Genesis slash Mega Drive, and so on and so forth. Once you perceive the witch in the tree, you can't not see her. While the technical improvements that we can describe in text and numerals are interesting, what fascinates me more are these lost worlds of perception, of what it means to experience things when they are new, and how they change our view of what came before. In 1888, the world was entering a new phonographic age, with perfect machines replacing the scientific toys of 1877. When Edison launched his new product, he couldn't have been sure what was going to happen with it, but he did have a few hopes and suggestions. In fact, he wrote a famous top 10 list that does more or less describe how we use the technology today. Everyone loves the list, so let's hear his. Number 1. Letter writing and all kinds of dictation without the aid of a stenographer. Number two, phonographic books, which will speak to blind people without effort on their part. Number three, the teaching of elocution. Number four, reproduction of music. Number five, the family record, a registry of sayings, reminiscences, etc. by members of a family in their own voices and of the last words of dying persons. Number six, music boxes and toys. Number seven, Clocks that should announce in articulate speech the time for going home, going to meals, etc. Number eight, the preservation of languages by exact reproduction of the manner of pronouncing. 
Number nine, educational purposes, such as preserving the explanations made by a teacher so that the pupil can refer to them at any moment, and spelling or other lessons placed upon the phonograph for convenience and committing to memory. Number 10, connection with the telephone, so as to make that instrument an auxiliary in the transmission of permanent and invaluable records, instead of being the recipient of momentary and fleeting communication. It was no accident that number one on the list was the idea of the phonograph as a dictation machine. In Edison's words, Since the light has been finished, I have taken up the phonograph, and after eight months' steady work have made it a commercial invention. I expect to see it in every business office. Edison outlined a program for the utility of the business phonograph, suggesting that a businessman simply had to speak in his natural voice, recording a message of 1,000, 2,000, or even 4,000 words that would be perfectly distinguishable and able to be played back indefinitely. These messages could either be listened to directly or else transcribed at a more convenient time. Edison did not position the phonograph as a replacement for the telephone. Rather, he saw the technologies as complementary, outlining a vision linking the phonograph with the telephone and the typewriter. The threat was not to competing machines, but rather to human stenographers. It was this vision that Gouraud was employed to make a reality in Britain and Europe. While business usage was Edison's primary intention for the phonograph, as ever with the technology, music was always in the air, so to speak. Again, in Edison's words, In the early phonograph, though imperfect and crude, it was always noticed that musical sounds came out peculiarly well. It would whistle or sing far better than it would talk. As for the rhetoric of the new technology, it went a lot like this. Musical sounds can now be captured in a practically indestructible phonogram, capable of being played over and over again with a beauty of tone and distinctness past belief. Then again, the new technology was impressive, particularly with regard to music, and the proof in part is that some of the recordings from these earliest experiments still survive. So let's return again to the Crystal Palace on the 29th of June where a Handel concert was taking place performed by 4,000 voices and 500 instruments. Gouraud, phonograph in hand, made a series of recordings from the press gallery. According to a note on one of the cylinders, he was recording from about 100 meters away, and remember it was a purely mechanical technology. Like the tinfoil phonograph before it, these new machines did not use any electricity whatsoever. Given these unfortunate recording conditions, it's no surprise that the recordings didn't quite capture the musical experience. Guru may have even considered the recordings a failure. He would eventually send them over the pond to Edison, and would later use another musical recording to demonstrate to the London public, which we'll get to in just a bit. However, if it wasn't an audible success, it was a PR success. He and the phonograph made the front page of the London Illustrated News. The picture, which will pop right up if you image search Guru Crystal Palace, depicts two gentlemen operating the machine from a platform overlooking the crowd and stage. A few ladies and gentlemen are nearby, and underneath the table is a pot of tea, obviously, along with two suspiciously bong-like objects. The wonderful thing for us is that out of these recordings, three of them survived long enough for them to be preserved digitally. For a long time, they were the oldest surviving musical recordings. Arguably, they still are, in the sense of being recordings of music per se that can be played back acoustically without the need of computer-based interventions. Another way of looking at it is that these are the oldest surviving recordings of music intended to be replayed and intended to stand the test of time. Looking at the illustration of the event, it seems they had around 100 cylinders to record onto. We're not sure how many were produced, but as I mentioned, only three have survived. They were all of a performance of Handel's wonderful choral oratorio, Israel in Egypt. Let's listen to one of them. 
As I mentioned, the recordings suffer from the poor recording conditions and also from the ravages of time. But let's accentuate the positive, eh? For one, it's a recording of 4,500 musicians singing and playing their hearts out in 1888. If the sheer thinginess of this doesn't fill you with childlike awe, then, well, that's fine actually, but I feel differently. Call me a romantic, a groupie, or what you will. Secondly, because we're certain of the pitch of the Crystal Palace organ at the time, we know for sure that the playback speed and pitch is exactly right, which is nice. The first bit you'll hear is from the chorus at the beginning of part two of the oratorio. They sing, Moses and the children of Israel sung unto the Lord and spake, saying. After that, you'll hear a segment of the following chorus. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed. You might be able to make out a gloriously at the end as well. Enjoy. So, it was a historical moment captured, but the recordings, even when new, lacked the clarity and richness of sound that the machine was capable of. As Gouraud planned his product launch party, so to speak, he decided to feature a recording of a much more intimate ensemble instead. Two musicians, anonymous to us, playing an instrumental version of a much more intimate musical work. A song whose lyrics lament that sometime in the dark and silent past, beautiful music had been improvised and then lost with the subtext reading for lack of a phonograph. Can you guess what it was yet? I think I already told you, so that should help if you're listening or remembering, which are two different things. Right, it was Arthur Sullivan's The Lost Chord. 
In August of 1888, Gouraud held a press conference introducing the new phonograph to the British public, featuring, among other thingy things, his recording of The Lost Chord. This recording survives as well. As with the Crystal Palace recordings, the years have added some noise and distortion, but it's all there. Many call this recording the very first recording of music to survive in a more or less distinct form that we can listen to as music. Note that these many firsts and earliests are not just for Britain, but for the US and the rest of the world too. There may have been earlier recordings of music, but they haven't survived. Well, I only bring this up as additional support for my choice to center on the British context. Anyway, let's hear it. Funny thing is, that's where the cylinder ended. The recording cuts off right before the musical climax. Oops. In a few years' time, in McLuhan-esque fashion, the form and length of pop songs would be defined by the recording length of the available recording technologies. But this was before that. I don't know how this issue was handled at the demonstrations, but it didn't matter. The crowds were by that point already blown away by the incredible advancements in the technology. I say demonstrations because after that first conference, several more were held for invited guests only at Little Menlo. Arthur Sullivan himself was invited to one on the 5th of October of 1888. He had his dinner and a few drinks and listened to the various speeches as well as the recording of the music that you just heard, literally. He pondered what it all meant and then, when it was his turn to step up to the horn, he recorded a speech to be sent to Thomas Edison. We're going to end this episode with that very recording. As ever, thanks for listening. Little Menlo, October 5th, 1888. From Guru to Edison. Continuation of introduction of friends. Now listen to the voice of Sir Arthur Sullivan. Dear Mr. Edison, if my friend whom Edmund Yates knew, 
has been a little incoherent. It is in consequence of the excellent dinner, the good wine that he has done. Therefore, I beg you will excuse him. He has his lucid interval. For myself, I can only say that I am astonished and somewhat terrified at the result of this evening's experiment. Astonished at the wonderful power you have developed and terrified at the thought that so much hideous bad music may be put on record forever. But all the same, I think it is the most wonderful thing that I have ever and I congratulate you with all my heart on this wonderful discovery. Arthur Sullivan.